Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we celebrate 25 years of The Nightmare Before Christmas with the film's writer, Caroline Thompson. So hello everyone, once again. Uh, this is Ben Mitchell, joined by Steve Henderson. Sneaking in one more squiggly podcast before we flutter away for the holidays. How are you doing, Steve? I'm not too bad, Ben. I'm feeling very Christmassy. I'm rearing and ready for a little bit of relaxation before uh, 2019 uh, arrives and kicks the crap out of us. The Christmas spirit is definitely instilled in both of us, and as such, it's going to be a pretty (laughs) brief episode, I'm afraid. (laughs) Um, Time is tight. What with us uh, both being a little snowed under because it's Christmas. Oh, I see what you did there. I'm the best. <laughs> uh, sort of out of nowhere, it occurred to me this year marks the 25th anniversary of the Nightmare Before Christmas, the sort of joint Christmas and Halloweeny movie. It's a good thing they worked out there. They did, yeah. But 25 years—that's crazy in and of itself. Yes, I do remember going to the cinemas to see it. As a kid, um, I, I went with my uh, my brothers, and my auntie Frances took us to the cinema, and she's got no real interest in animation, and it's a pretty, I mean, back then it was a pretty sort of far out film. You know, she thought she was taking the kids to the cinema to see a Christmas animation, so she's probably expecting Disney or, you know, two D animation or something like that, and then you've got this kind of spindly Burton-esque kind of twisted Christmas extravaganza and I I remember absolutely loving it and then as and and so we as kids you know bounced out the cinemas we absolutely loved it um and you know I remember turning around to me Auntie Francis going what do you what do you like did you like it and she went I hated every second of it <laughs> and she she said the only bit that she liked was when Santa squished the book but, okay, <laughs> that's the only bit that she liked, right? Uh, right at the end. Um, I didn't want to give too much of a spoiler there, but people have had twenty-five years to watch the bloody thing. So, yeah. Um, do you remember the first time you saw the film? Yeah, quite vividly. I well, I remember it as a um, just a whole Christmas. I guess it would have been around a year after it came out. I sort of missed it in the cinemas. Hmm. I was aware of it. I remember like seeing sort of posters for it. I don't know why it just wasn't really sort of hugely on my radar, but it came out on video. And by that point I had seen enough like ads and stuff for it. And I was getting more into like animation and stuff. Uh, I think around that time, the wrong trousers came out. Yeah. And that had really lit like a sort of enthusiastic fire under me as far as stop motion goes. So yeah, I remember it was a Christmas we were spending in Canada. We picked up the, uh, the VHS, on our way to our little cabin in the woods and i watched that tape every day for two weeks (laughs) and the first time i watched i just remember like so vividly like the opening musical number like which is still probably one of my favorite parts of the film because it's it's everything about the movie but really concentrated into three or four minutes i I use it i use it in my teaching it's you know at university it's the perfect opening to a film it tells yeah. you everything you need to know in this kind of pill. It gives you the entire lore of the film that you're going to be watching. It's superb. 
And I think also I was just sort of enchanted by it musically. Mm. The orchestration of that first song, it was, I think, the first time I was really kind of aware of like what each individual instrument was doing mm. and how it was kind of accentuating the visuals and how the you know it was all sort of interweaving in this sort of glorious way. Like that's one of the last films I think that was like taken in as this completely magical experience. Because as we get older and our brains develop, we get less enchanted by films, mm. and we don't throw ourselves into the universe of a film quite as willingly. They kind of need to win you over more. Yeah. As a kid, you kind of unquestioningly are like, okay, for the next hour and a bit, I'm I'm in this, and I'm you know whatever the logic is is entirely determined by what the film tells me it is. And this was one of the last films I remember that completely grabbed me in that way. And it's really kind of infected my brain ever since to the point where, you know, I'll be listening to Christmas music at work and the little drummer boy is playing. He's like, yeah, da 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 Pumpkin scream in the dead of night. They're the best. They're the best Christmas songs and they rarely end up on the radio at that time. We have to listen to... Wham or Paul McCartney or you know it's it's that kind of oh um, whereas any number and I will any number from Nightmare Before Christmas is absolutely gorgeous and I think you you mentioned it way back when we first started doing the podcast you you shared with me the um, the foreign translations of the songs oh, and yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful how they fit into different languages because you have something as tender as Sally's song in Italian yeah. which just sounds so poetic and, and it just en- enlivens it with this gorgeous spirit and then this is Halloween in German I yeah. think it was <laughs> which just matched it was just incredible they're just yeah they're, they're amazing songs is it Danny Elfman isn't it is uh, you know the same guy who did the Simpsons theme <laughs> churning out these absolute uh, classics I'll go into that a little bit more in a, in a minute because it, it brings to mind something about where that film lies in the catalogue of Tim Burton and his crowd hmm. but you know I mean really it was at the time I, I don't think considered a very world-pleasing film oh disney hated it didn't yeah. they? well it's it's interesting because i when i say it sort of occurred to me that this year was the 25th anniversary what i mean by that is i've been deluged by a f-ing glut of ads for <laughs> merchandise whenever yes. i've been online like nightmare before christmas 25 years by now <laughs> and you know all top of the line of course mm-hmm. notepads pencil cases hoodies you're, you're laughing you can literally buy nightmare before christmas cluedo get away they finally filled that gap in the marketplace <laughs> and uh monopoly too which makes perfect sense when you consider how much of the film deals with the cutthroat world of investing in real estate and coordinating the financial insolvency of your rivals amazing bedfellows but now of course the film has become a much beloved disney classic like in hindsight Who's who's sorry sorry go back. Who's dead in Nightmare Before Christmas? Cluedo. <laughs> who's, who's the dead person? Is it Santa? maybe it's who's alive? Ooh, twist. Maybe we can get like a review copy. <laughs> <laughs> it's all been leading to this, Ben. <laughs> they should make another Cluedo movie with the Nightmare Before Christmas puppets, 
but have it like sort of follow the storyline of the Tim Curry <laughs> Pluto movie. <laughs> I'm full of ideas. Yeah. For draining a beloved IP dry. I can't believe this podcast is free. Really exactly. Oh. But yeah, no, you're right. Disney didn't really have its mark on it very much at the time. Like, it was definitely like a touchstone film when it came out mm. as this kind of strange little underdog oddity of a film. And of course, now people are ape for it. It's a big part of the old Disney canon. I guess it always was, but like... Disney being such a huge umbrella as all these subsidiaries. So, you know, Touchstone was like, okay, this is where we put out our stuff that maybe isn't as much and diceable. Of course, time told on that. Mm. Uh, I think technically Pulp Fiction was a Disney film. Like if you follow this chain of like studios, I think it goes like up to like Miramax, which at the time would have been owned by Disney. Yeah. And Scream and Hellraiser and like... Well, they they set them up, didn't they? It was... um it was back in the time when they wanted to release Pretty Woman, Disney did back in the day. And people kept telling uh, the, the heads of Disney, listen, we're Disney. We don't, we don't do films about prostitutes. No. And, and, and so they created uh, uh, different divisions. And so that, that's where Disney kind of started to, started to sprawl, really, and started to make different branches, which could... Uh, you know, you didn't have the Walt Disney logo on it because it was a film about a hooker. You know, <laughs> you, you, you have all these different kind of um, films that were made. And then obviously films like Splash and all that kind of stuff. Disney was quite dormant in the early 80s, wasn't it? And then it just kind of uh, exploded. Have you read a book called Disney War by James B. Stewart? If, if you've not, I would really recommend it. Um, ask Santa for it. It's absolutely wonderful. And it traces this kind of where Disney were back in the day and how it really transformed from a company that was ready to close down its animation business and just kind of going through the motions to this conglomerate, you know, this, this what the Disney that we know today. You were clearly the right person to bring this up with. <laughs> you picked the right nerd, my friend. <laughs> well, there you go. That answered uh, a lot of my uh, my questions about uh, how that all is uh, tied together. I didn't realize it was as recent as Pretty Woman. Mm. Like, when that all began, I would have thought it was more established, like, further back. But there you go. Yeah. Now you can ask the questions that I've just bulldozed over. <laughs> You can see we're focusing on the elements of the film that makes it so magical. Hmm. <laughs> like how the <laughs> And if you look at the nineteen eighty three tax returns for Disney Ben, you'll find in subsection four. <laughs> Enchanting. Going back to what we actually like about the film and the story and uh like you sort of saying very vivid memories of that kind of first exposure to it. And then I really, I think overexposed myself to it for such a long time. It was in equal measure, like I said, the music as well as the story and the animation. But I remember around the 10th time I watched it, noticing all this stuff in the animation that I hadn't seen at all. Like what they do in the background, what characters are doing the way, um, they're interacting with one another, but they're not the focus of the scene. Mm. And that, I think, was a nice introduction to fucking hell, the labor that goes into an animated production that yeah. we just filter out. Yeah, and that I, I remember sort of feeling a kind of palpable respect for that. So, yeah, I mean, it holds up for many reasons. Pretty much every shot, I think, is great. I could, like, count on one hand the number of shots that are anything less than perfect. 
uh, out of the hundreds of shots there are in that film. Yeah. And even then I'm just being sort of like picky, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, was there anything else about it that kind of uh, entranced you? Well, just the fact that there's nothing else like it. And it's quite Mm. easy to point to, you know, Henry Selleck's other films like Coraline, or you can point to uh, James and the Giant Peach or something like that around the time. But I really really think it is, it's just one of those one-off films. Mm. And thank God it's a one-off film. Thank God it's not going to be, there's not going to be a sequel uh, or any of that kind of stuff. It's... It's just got absolutely everything. I think it might be the first time in the cinemas, maybe the second time in the cinemas, um, that I was scared as well. Uh, I was, yeah, I was relatively young and uh, all that kind of stuff. And the first time I was scared was Edward Scissorhands. Um, But the second time I was scared, it was uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. It was the bit where, uh, obviously near the end, you know, where, where they're in the kind of roulette wheel, you know, the finale. Yeah. Where they, where... You know, Santa Claus was going to die. I was convinced <laughs> that he was going to die, um, and and it was that kind of like, oh my god, this 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 is a serious film. This is <laughs> hardcore. This is yeah. What film puts Santa Claus in jeopardy? You know, <laughs> not even Santa Claus the movie did that. You know, they'll, they'll let Dudley Moore take the heat. You know, and it's <laughs> it's um, it's that kind of like. You know, I remember that kind of. The, the sort of adrenaline of all that lot. It was just a, a wonderful film. I also remember the, the extra characters, like you say. I remember thinking, I want to know more about the mad scientist. Mm. Yeah. I want to know more about that guy. Or I want to know more about the mayor. You know, what's going on with his face? What's, what's all <laughs> that about? You know, yeah. every single little bit of it, it kept you wanting more. And I think that that's probably where you went from this kind of relatively unsuccessful film at the box office to people sort of growing up with it and remembering it and sort of buying it on VHS or buying it on DVD and then people getting really getting into it and you know maturing with the film I do seem to remember as well the explosion of merchandise that happened when I started going to university. Yeah, there's a real delay. Yeah, well, you start hanging around with, with people that you wouldn't really have hung around with, uh, and then you go into the sort of uh, shops that sell alternative stuff. And I remember going in, and just half the shop was uh, bags of Jack Skellington's face and loads of Sally stuff, loads of Nightmare Before Christmas gear that was just merch that was all there on the shelves. And I remember thinking, well... Where have you guys been for the last decade? <laughs> yeah. I, I like this before it was not cool, but cool. <laughs> well, as a special treat for you all, and frankly for me, uh, we're going to be talking with the writer of the film, Caroline Thompson. What with it being generally known as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas <laughs> the dual misconceptions I think about the film that reoccur the most when it comes up is that Tim Burton directed it or that he wrote it. Yeah. He did write a poem a long time before they made it into a film, I think over 10 years before. He, he did try as well, didn't he? He tried long and hard to get Disney to make the film. Mm. I think it kind of went through the sort of circuitous journey of ownership and you do like little test things to kind of see if it has legs like frank and weenie i remember he did like a short film Mm. years and years and years before they did the full length feature film 
and that just kind of existed in a kind of limbo in that period in between. Sometimes if you just kind of submit a very embryonic form of an idea, but you happen to be working for like a studio like Disney at the time, they just own it forever (laughs) and you can't really do anything with it. I've been watching or sort of listening to these quite interesting like video streams of this games developer, uh, a guy called American McGee. And he's been talking about like the degree of ownership he has over various incarnations of a game he made 20 years ago and he really doesn't own much of it um to actually make more he has to you know get in good with the company that does own it but then a whole other company owns the film rights so a while ago he was trying to do like an animated film with it and that then involved this whole other you know mess of wheeling and dealing and didn't really lead anywhere it's been kind of fascinating, like, when your ideas mm. just aren't your own. Yeah. So, anyway, I mean, obviously, The Nightmare Before Christmas has a happy ending as far as what became of it. You know, I mean, of course, it was uh, Henry Selick who directed Nightmare Before Christmas would go on to do... I think I read somewhere that Tim Burton was there for, like, 16 days. Right. He turned up, like, a few times and sort of had a little wander around the set and, you know, which must have been, like, a royal visit. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting, like, just spooky stop motion, I think, gets attributed to Tim Burton. Mm. People think Tim Burton directed Coraline. Mm. (laughs) Mm. Well, that's one that drives Laura nuts. (laughs) With The Nightmare Before Christmas, I don't think it's completely unreasonable, A, that his name's, like, on the poster, but it also definitely, like you mentioned before, it has the Tim Burton stamp all over it. Yeah. Uh, and all of these little visual motifs, and I'm sure that there are a lot of recurring people from the art departments of various films of his. Uh, it's very consistent with, say, Beetlejuice or Edward Scissorhands, the kind of juxtaposition of the brightly coloured suburban uh, sets and the sort of dark monochrome, you know, house on the hill is kind of like Halloween Town. Batman Returns is a very gothic Christmassy thing. You know, checkerboards and black and white stripes. Starting in a graveyard. Yeah. I guess that particular era of his filmmaking career, which... He has his own tropes, doesn't he? Yeah. I think it's generally regarded more fondly by people certainly my age than films he would do later that would maybe mm. kind of step a little bit outside of those um, those crutches. I think a lot of people generally, if they think of the tim burton films they really love it is stuff like beetlejuice and the batman films and edward scissorhands and this you know i mean my kind of personal cutoff i'm i'm with them up to like big fish Mm. um and i liked the corpse bride you know it didn't grab me the way this film did but it was um i was much older of course as well so but the tim burton who made charlie and the chocolate factory and alice in wonderland i I get nothing out of those oh yeah absolutely it, it's it's an odd one, isn't it? I mean, we talk about the, the Tim Burton tropes, but in, in many ways, The Nightmare Before Christmas is an inverted Tim Burton film. Because most of the times it's somebody who's an outsider, who uh, is is just like a kind of, I'm a spooky outsider and I, the, the, the world's all pastel-coloured and, and sparkly and I don't want any of it and I want everything to be spooky. Whereas in this film, it's like Jack Skellington wants everything to be cosy and warm and Christmassy. 
it's it's quite odd, isn't it? But it's still the story of a, a, an outsider uh, wanting to to sort of you know discover something new. It's yeah, it's weird. It's weird. So it's a but in, in, if you think about it uh, too much, like I do, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's takeaway is a very simple one that I think is is a good lesson, is that try new things, but don't become something you're not. Mm. And I, what I always loved about the kind of, I'm sure everyone's seen the film, the <laughs> redemption, I guess, of him after he essentially ruins Christmas, he takes him about two minutes to get back on the horse, <laughs> you know, within one song, like he's so upset. At the beginning, what have I done? And then, like, a minute and a half later, he's like, F***ing hell, I am the pumpkin king! Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, folks. <laughs> Back to business. <laughs> he's, he's gone through his midlife crisis, I guess. Mm. To the expense of, and labour <laughs> of all his friends, but still. So, yeah, I think another reason why, perhaps, these films kind of evoke one another... Like I said, there's that sort of overlap of personnel. Caroline also wrote Edward Scissorhands. I think it was like with The Nightmare Before Christmas, initially based on a story idea Tim Burton had. And also, I think in the case of The Nightmare Before Christmas, there was, I think, an an earlier stab at the script made by a guy called Michael McDowell. And he's the guy who wrote the first draft of Beetlejuice. Mm. Uh, So they're all kind of, you know, interwoven. The first draft of Beetlejuice, incidentally, is a fascinating read. Like I'm a as a film geek, I, I one of the things I, I enjoy is reading scripts of films I like because films go on such a journey, and usually the first draft there's a, a long way to go before it becomes what you mm. are familiar with. And there are elements of the original Beetlejuice script that are really like joyless and unpleasant and like what the and beetlejuice is a weird enough film but there's like a whole bit toward the end where beetlejuice is like pretending to be from the irs and he's like auditing the deets family and that's like how he's (laughs) and i remember when they in the script it when it introduces otho the um interior decorator guy who just lives with them for some reason Mm. in the script it has this really horribly phrased introduction of the character like you think of that guy as a kind of sympathetic lawrence llewellyn bowen type yeah you know but in the script he's like clearly the scriptwriter didn't like those types of guys Mm. and says he makes you think of robert morley at his fattest and f***iest (laughs) That's how it reads in the script. Wow. <laughs> it's like, what an angry, weird dude <laughs> wrote this movie. Ouch. I'm glad they kind of wrestled it away from him and made it into something kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know to what extent he was actually involved in The Nightmare Before Christmas. I suspect he wasn't involved super much, but I did note that he was kind of credited as being involved. Mm. I just film stories and, and things that never were or almost were, I, I am kind of addicted to. More as an anecdotal storyteller than a filmmaker, I love Kevin Smith for like his stories of trying to make it in Hollywood. Mm. And he had a great story about trying to do a version of Superman with Tim Burton. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, yeah. And that... Um, I, I'm not going to give away... It has one of the best punchlines ever, but it involves a, a spider. And uh, go look up that on YouTube, Kevin Smith talking about Superman. Mm. 
sometimes, you know, a film will actually be great in the, the script stage and then it will just get really, really terrible mm-hmm. because too many people get their, their hands on it or the budget doesn't really accommodate the vision of the script or whatever. So it's, it's just, just something I, I like to geek out over. Anywho, I guess this kind of community that was sort of around as far as creative minds and whatnot, I think that all kind of built up the vibe that's attributed to the Tim Burton of the late 80s, early 90s, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, I guess that last sort of shout would have been probably Corpse Bride, like, well over 10 years ago now, I guess, that came out. And he did direct that. 13 years ago, Ben. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Corpse Bride was uh, it was directed by well, it was Mike Johnson and, and Tim Burton. Okay, probably one of those occasions where uh, we're not entirely sure if if he was there. But uh, yeah, he, he, you do have films where it's directed by, but then you have like animation directors who are basically directing it. You know, it'll be interesting to see. As we're recording this, I haven't yet spoken to Caroline. It's one of these rare occasions where we actually do the podcast <laughs> segments chronologically. Caroline also uh, wrote Corpse Bride. Mm-hmm. It sort of bookends, I guess, the that era mm-hmm. a little bit, and several other non-animation films. My heart absolutely leapt when I saw that she did the original Adams Family. Yeah, or rather, the '90s iteration of the Adams Family, it's not the original, but uh, the definitive. I would dare to say, mm. mainly just because that was the one I happened to <laughs> be introduced to that uh, that concept via. But I've, I think I've, I've said before, I think maybe me and Laura were talking about this a couple of podcasts ago because she had uh, spoken with the writer of the new Adams Family that has yet to be made or come out. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of talking a bit about like how the Adams Family, when married with lazy writing, is pretty crap. It's not anything special, really. It's kind of like, it. it I think, invites lazy writing and the writing of the old adams family movies the ones with christopher lloyd and that lot yeah like they're just very well written and very fun and they don't just ride on the coattails of like "Uh uh-oh they're spooky and strap in they're also quite kooky yeah (laughs) altogether ooky i dare say i may be so bold sir but i just loved the there was actually a story there yeah which um yeah. Well, there's there's another film that that has that kind of Tim Burton thread throughout, but it's so far removed from Tim Burton, isn't it? He, I don't think he had anything mm. to do with it. He didn't direct it at all. It was um, uh, Men in Black, Barry Sonnenfeld, is it? Barry Sonnenfeld? Yeah, I think uh, who so. Who directed The Addams Family. It's kind of because of the stripy jumpers and, you know, all that kind of graveyard and all that kind of stuff. It's often kind of... Um, pointed at as a as a Tim Burton film, I seem to recall. I mean, I, maybe it's just me. Maybe I sort of grew up thinking it was a Tim Burton film. Like you say, because of that look, I think it's, you know, people would make that conclusion. Mm-hmm. It is kind of funny. I imagine probably a, a primary contender for the soundtrack for the new Adams Family would be Danny Elfman. Mm. But in the, uh, the notes for when the soundtrack for the 1990 Adams Family came out, which I have. It's a great soundtrack. The guy who wrote, I think, is Mark Scheiman. And uh, in his liner notes for, like, you know, his experience working on the film, he's like, yeah, I got the call to do The Addams Family, and the first thing I sort of, oh, I guess Danny Elfman said no. <laughs> <laughs> that was nearly, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> so it would be kind of funny if Danny Elfman then actually did an Addams Family soundtrack. Mm. <laughs> anyway. I think Tim Burton was definitely 
on the cards for doing the stop motion version when it was going to be stop motion. Now I guess it's CG. I guess it's a whole other project, but that would have been potentially kind of cool, mm. you know. So yeah, pretty impressive body of work as far as our childhoods go. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very glad that she was available to chat with us at this late time of year. So Ben, I've got a question for you before we get into this interview. Yes, uh, I've managed to get together uh, Henry Selick, Tim Burton, Caroline Thompson. Uh, we've got uh, all the original cast are involved. Um, everything's good to go. The Nightmare Before Christmas 2. Are you on board? I'd be more interested in trying to get Monkey Bone 2 off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I, I like you sort of mentioned before, it, one of the things about it that makes it particularly special is that it's its own contained universe. That means full to the Walt Disney Company at the moment. <laughs> as we have seen with this, you know, every other film they make is a film they already made. Yeah. God, I can't believe people are saying the new Aladdin is live action. It's clearly animation. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, uh, they're doing the Aladdin fucking movie now. We're, we're just seeing the Lion King trailer. Do one at a time. Yes, yes, yes. I will say that the guy that they have gotten f to play Jafar in the new Aladdin, I would not kick him out of bed for eating crackers. <laughs> he is a smoldering motherfucker. <laughs> I've not I've not seen who it is. I want to be his Iago, if you know what I mean. You, you want to sit on his on his shoulder? Yeah, basically, and have him feed me crackers. I didn't think yeah. that through really. <laughs> so yeah, that's my my kind of hope is that they don't remake or sequel or whatever of this film i they've done like video games and things for it which like you know okay but i the interest level in that kind of thing i don't really see i guess much value to it i think again the issue with it would be like with something like the adams family okay you've got this crazy kooky halloweeny scenario mm. we did it once we were able to capture lightning in a bottle surely to do so again would take very little effort because all of the ingredients are just there. And <laughs> that's not, you know, that's very typical of making a sequel. Okay, we'll just take the characters that we know and love and just plop them in a new scenario for no particular reason and see how they get along. Mm. You you realize very quickly, oh no, there was actually more to this. There was uh, more consideration for the character. There was more respect for the audience that um you weren't just being you know shown a bunch of sequences and scenarios you were being told a story that was trying to reach you or engage you like on this sort of wiki entry that's open in front of me one of the video games is called oogie's revenge like could you imagine a more lazy mm. way of extending the story is that the <clears throat> bad guy gets revenge <laughs> hell I hope they gave that guy an award. <laughs> That's where I'm kind of at with that. But I could make one and maybe it would do well or do badly. In it. I've learned to kind of live with the decisions of studios or whatever, who, if they want to make sequels to films I liked that are not very good, then I, it's as bad as them not making it at all because I'm not going to watch it. So it doesn't, mm. it doesn't upset me in the way I think it upsets a lot of the Twitter verse. It, it will always exist. The film will always exist. And if, if there were, if there were a sequel, if there were a, 
um, something done to tarnish that kind of you know uh, universe that people are so invested in, you can just ignore it and just you know just watch the original again because it's there. It's just as good as it ever was. It's sat there waiting for you twenty five years later, or fifty years later, or whenever you plan to watch the film. They're always there for you. Oh, we went to see um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit a uh, a week or so ago, part of the uh, the home 80s season that my, my wife's programmed. And there's another film where I'm glad there's no sequel to. Yeah. Because, again, it's just this perfect capsule uh, of of ideas and, and, and execution. And, I mean, if they tried doing that again, God knows what would happen. Yeah. And but but it's even if they did and even if they ruined it, even if they made the perfect one, this the original's still there and it's you know just as good as it ever was. It reminds me a bit of going back to that Kevin Smith thing and his remembrances of, you know, working on the Superman project. One of the other things he was pitched as like a thing to write a script for was called Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. <laughs> Or Beetlejuice goes tropical. Something to do with Beetlejuice entering a surfing competition. No, <laughs> I swear that's real. <laughs> and uh, he dismissed that outright, which I think was a wise thing to do. <laughs> Blimey! I would kind of now be interested in seeing a post Birdman Michael Keaton do a Beetlejuice film. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you see that McDonald's film he did? No, no, the founder is it. Yeah, it's very good. It's very. I liked it a lot. I mean, it's a bit overlong, maybe in parts, but it was interesting. He's never reminded me of Beetlejuice in any role he's taken mm. other than Beetlejuice, except for this film, because he's this really shucking and jiving like hustler guy. Mm. And he's not, like, doing the Beetlejuice voice or anything. It's just his body language and his, like, pitching himself to these doe-eyed naifs who run the original McDonald's. And he kind of um, does a number on them. And that was interesting, seeing him in that mood again 30-something years after. It was interesting. It's a good film. It's interesting. Hmm. I think, like, 10 years ago, he would have been up for a new Beetlejuice film. Maybe now, not so much, now that he's sort of back on the sort of... uh, (laughs) Back in the good graces, I guess, of uh, Hollywood. Yeah, he's out of the woods. Uh, cool. Shall we? Uh, shall we hear from Caroline Thompson? Yeah. Awesome. I guess to begin with, just sort of generally, it would be nice to hear a bit about where you were at the point where you started writing for films, and what had kind of led you down that path. You had written novels before, right? I had written one novel. My ex-husband and I moved to Southern California from Massachusetts a year after I graduated from university because we didn't want to stay on the East Coast anymore, not for any other particular reason, but to escape our families. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, we went as far as we could, but still stay on the continental United States. So that led us to Los Angeles. And we knew a number of people in the film industry, and both of us were fiction writers, but became more or less fascinated by the movie business. But my dream had always been to be a novelist. So I wrote my first novel. I was lucky enough to have a friend pretend to be my agent and send it to my editor of choice, who was actually Stephen King's editor um, at at Coward McCann is where it was published. And she sent it 
uh, and it arrived on a Monday and he had a very light day and read it immediately and bought it on the Tuesday, which was yes. phenomenal. It was a strange little horror movie, which I think of more as a black comedy about, I mean, horror uh, novel, uh, which I think of it more as a black comedy about uh, suburban life in America. It was called Firstborn, and politically incorrectly enough, it was the story of an abortion that didn't uh, work and comes back to find its mommy. <clears throat> and the reason I was inspired to write this story is that on my 21st birthday, I got a birthday card from my mother, who had a bit of Tourette's, I think, because whatever came into her mind either came out her mouth or through her hand. And so she wrote me a birthday card that said, thank goodness abortion wasn't legal in 1956 because you wouldn't be here. I thought that was both a very severe thing to say, but also hilariously funny. So that led me to sort of fantasize about, about what, what might've been. And, but it was really, it's a story about, about suburbia. It's also a story about mother and child, mutual obsession. Um, At any rate, I, published that novel and I wanted to turn it into a film. And so I was lucky enough again to be given an agent by, I happened at that time to know the man who was the president of production at Columbia Pictures. And he threatened this agent that he had to represent me or I I don't know what. And um, so I said to this agent, I want um, to get my book to three people. I want to get it to David Lynch because Eraserhead felt like uh, it had a lot of kinship to this story. I wanted to get it to Brian De Palma because Carrie was my favorite movie. And I wanted to get it to Penelope Spears because I thought that um, the decline of Western civilization was just genius. So this agent being lazy got it only to Penelope Spears because she happened to be represented by the same uh, agency. And she loved it. And so I gave her an option on the book for a dollar if she would let me write the screenplay with her. So that is what exactly what we did. I would go to her house with my then um, Osborne computer, which is the size of a sewing machine and weighed 40 pounds, early, early computer. And I would take my computer to her house and she would cook us lunch. And I, I knew enough about writing to know that if I had my hands on the keys of the computer, then, you know, if she suggested something I didn't like, I just wouldn't put it down. So. So anyway, we wrote the screenplay. It was called Boy Child, and it was optioned actually more than once, never got made, but I became absolutely smitten with writing screenplays because to me they were like writing poems, like writing a sonnet. It, it, the rules were very clear, and I had watched enough movies in my life to sort of have a, a refined instinct about the rhythm of a film, and that's how I uh, landed in the movie business. Was Edward Scissorhands then the first script, or had there been others kind of in the interim? No. Um, well, there was one script in between. I got my first proper movie deal for an original screenplay at Universal Pictures. Uh, it was called Distant Music. I don't remember anything about it, to be perfectly honest. So I, I left the agent who, you know, was kind of a, he, he was also kind of a scumbag. Um, Penelope Spears' agent, John Burnham, asked if, after reading our script of from my novel, was so mystified by the weird content that he asked if he could represent me. And that was in 1983 or four, and he's still my agent today. Um, yeah. So he he worked at, a, at William Morris and 
or was it ICM? Anyway, he worked at, at the same agency where Tim Burton was represented. And Tim had just done Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And I had written this strange little novel and screenplay. And my agent suggested that Tim and I meet one another because they didn't know what to do with either of us at the agency. So we were introduced and immediately felt a kinship and a great friendship and wanted to work together. And in fairly short order, I remember we were at a bar in Santa Monica called the Bombay Bicycle Club, sort of spitballing ideas. And he told me about a drawing he had made in high school of a kind of Struhlpetter kind of character uh, who had scissors instead of hands. And I immediately said, stop right there. I know exactly what to do with that. And so I went home and, and it, it has a kinship to my first novel because, again, it's a it's a sort of fond but sad and angry look at suburban life in America. So I went home and being more of a novelist than a screenwriter at that time, I wrote a prose version very quickly. It was about 70 pages long. And <clears throat> the one thing Tim had thought at that time was that the story should be a musical because he felt that it would be more acceptable to an audience, this sort of surreal vision um, if it were a musical. So I had, I took the liberty of even writing songs, <laughs> really bad lyrics and horrible <laughs> titles. Like I can't handle this, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, which I later gave to Matthew Bourne when, when he did the Edward Scissorhands ballet, we had a good laugh about it. Um, uh, anyway, so Tim read the treatment I had written and decided promptly that we didn't need it to be a musical. And he had a deal at Warner Brothers at the time, but he didn't want to stay there. So he basically pitched it to the head of Warner's, you know, with a, you know, making it sound very unappealing. So they passed on it. And the producer, now producer, was Scott Rudin was then the head of 20th Century Fox. And he, I think he would have made the phone book with Tim. So we made a deal for Edward Scissorhands, whereby... Uh, I would be paid Writers Guild minimum, and in exchange for that, we would have no meetings, no notes, no contact with the studio until we turned the screenplay in on a would be on a Friday, and they had till the Monday to either uh, give it a green light or pass. That is exactly what happened. It happened many years later because Tim had commitments to Beetlejuice and Batman, and hmm. so he was very busy. So that's exactly what happened. The movie got turned in, the screenplay got, you know, because it never would have survived studio scrutiny, um, particularly today. But even then, they would want to know terrible things like, you know, how does he go to the bathroom? You know, that we they just would have stripped it of all of its pleasures enough that it probably would have just kind of collapsed in a heap of despair. So, mm. so that was a very smart deal that we made. And I've never heard of a deal like that before or since and um anyway that's how that happened ultimately then tim burton's sort of story involvement didn't really extend beyond that drawing that's true i ah. I, get, I shared story credit with him voluntarily because i obviously without the inspiration of that drawing it wouldn't have existed so i felt like he deserved to share story credit kind of to my much to my chagrin because there's lots of high schools and stuff that want to do Edward Scissorhands plays. And if, if I had kept just, you know, sole credit, I could have given permission to do that. But Tim is disinclined to give that permission, unfortunately, because, you know, it just seems like such a simple 
thing to say yes to. Why not? But anyway. It is interesting and great that you were able to do it under those circumstances without sort of meddling from the get-go. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking of all the films, like just in terms of the role of a screenwriter in production, when it is turned in and the, there's the final shooting script done, do you then stick around during production in case there's any cause for involvement or additions or things like that? Well, it depends on the project. I did go to the set of Edward Scissorhands. It was in Tampa, Florida, so it was all the way across the country. But I could feel that Tim was very uncomfortable with having me there. Uh, I'm not quite sure why. It, and it did create a rift between us that's never really been repaired. So I was slated to stay for two or three weeks, and I think I stayed 10 days or so because um, it, 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 you know, it was unnecessary for me to be there. and. The script had pretty much had had definitely been locked before they started shooting. One actress <laughs> took liberties with her part and started sort of spitballing dialogue, and so that was kind of tough. But it it didn't hurt the movie. So. In in America, uh, actors really think of the of the script as kind of a a template, whereas in Britain, you know, writers are so respected that. Screenplays are taken as, um, you know, sacred documents. So mm. it was always fun to work over there. Yeah, it's interesting. Like the idea of someone playing the character saying, oh, here's some things my character would do <laughs> when they didn't well, yeah, actually come up with it. Well, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, or they wanted a bigger part for themselves. So they, you know, blah, blah. But it is a little frustrating and it happens quite frequently over here. But as I said, it does not. You know, they wouldn't dare do it over there, <laughs> luckily. <laughs> well, I guess between Edward Scissorhands and Nightmare, along comes the Adams Family. I guess at the time, maybe the biggest point of reference would have been the old sitcom version from several decades <laughs> mm -hmm. previously. When you were working on that, were you th was that in mind, or were you kind of looking more toward like the older versions, like the old newspaper cartoons, that kind of thing? Yes, I, I, I was quite emphatic about taking our inspiration from Charles Adams' New Yorker cartoons. I'm not sure that we were able, Larry Wilson, my co-writer, and I were able to really hang on to that impulse, but uh, it definitely was what informed us. The sitcom is really charming. Um, I think I was a bit snobbish about it when we wrote the screenplay. So we never even looked at it again. And, and in those days, I guess it would have been hard to find at any rate, but definitely the inspiration was Charles Adams, macabre and, and lovely imagination. Mm -hmm. As a pre-existing property then was working on the script, something you were kind of drafted in for, uh, well, or had you come up with the, an idea to make it into a film? So after Edward Scissorhands, Scott Rudin, the man who I had mentioned as the head of 20th Century Fox, became an independent producer. And he asked me if I would write An Adams Family. And I said no, because I, I didn't and still don't consider myself a writer of sort of blockbuster material. And I just felt like it was just way too um, commercial and enterprise for my sensibilities. And um, he said, well, would you meet Larry Wilson, the, the writer one of the writers of Beetlejuice. And I, I said, yes. <laughs> and Larry was so charming and we had such fun together that 
I then said yes to the project. And Larry and I laughed for the 18 months it took us to write the first draft and had a wonderful time, though I did realize that I would never make a living as a screenwriter if it took me 18 months to do a first draft. So I pretty much worked on my own after that. But it was a really fun experience. And Larry was not at all you know, averse or intimidated by the idea of a big commercial tentpole or whatever you call it, movie. So. Hmm. That's how that happened. Being more of a commercial thing, I suppose, was there kind of less control as far as keeping the script version of it and then the what was eventually filmed? Like, were there big differences? Well, we were fired after the table reading, and yes. Scott Rudin brought in a friend to, to rewrite us, but they didn't rewrite us enough to get credit. And in fact, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you what they added or didn't add. Barry Sonnenfeld, the director, took a dislike to me. <laughs> Scott Rudin eventually oh. took a dislike to me. Um, things get real personal in our business. And mm. and so when Scott was producing his first film, which I think was a Mike Nichols movie called Regarding Henry, he brought Larry and myself to New York. And after the day's shoot, he would have Larry and me and Barry to his hotel room and, you know, do a postmortem on what we had written that day and it was a oh i mean it was a strange but it was terrible but a wonderful experience because you know we lived at the ritz carlton in new york for three months how bad can that be <laughs> but scott would say of our work like well that's not funny and that's not funny <laughs> i said you wouldn't know funny if it sat on your face <laughs> oh. Oh. and it I mean that was my first experience of that i mean in in, in my world uh you know, very few productions are perfect. In my mind, Edward Scissorhands was the one really perfect production I worked on simply because we were all making the same movie. And so tone is the hardest thing to communicate to other people, both as a writer and as a director. And that tone was particularly effervescent. And, and we, you know, it was a blessing that everybody was making the same movie. Um, on the Adams Family you know, I think pretty much people on the production were making the same film, but we weren't included in that fun. Mm. And I, I guess that probably answers my other sort of curiosity as to you not being involved in the follow-up movie. I'm guessing at that point. Not at all. We were yeah. not at, at all. No, no, no. We were not involved in the follow-up movie. But that Paul Rudnick, who did write that movie, was the writer that Scott Rudin brought in to rewrite us on the first one. I see. I, I might be remembering this wrong. I, I think that Scott Rudin may have been one of the names that came up a few years ago when all those hacked emails were doing the rounds. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he was. <laughs> he and Amy Pascal made the, were the ones who made those racist comments about our much-missed president. Yeah, he didn't come off as very lovable, I have to say. He actually can be incredibly charming and funny when he wants to be. So, uh, well, then moving on, I guess, um, I gather the seed of the idea for Nightmare Before Christmas had existed quite a long time before uh, anything was set in motion as far as a film. Do you remember what sort of state it was in around the time you came on board? Oh, yes, I do. Um, so Tim had written the, the, the little poem, uh, I think when he was working at Disney, I don't know how many years before, probably 20 years before. I, I wasn't around for the notion of, of making a film sort of inspired by that little ditty. 
what happened was that, as I mentioned, Tim and I had a little bit of a falling out over Edward Scissorhands. So I guess, so, um, I was not the original writer hired to write, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, the original writer was called Michael McDowell and he was the main writer on Beetlejuice and, uh, Danny Elfman was hired to write the songs. And Danny happened to be my partner at the time. And he was living with me when he was writing the songs. And so I was quite close to knowing, you know, how the story was shaping up. And Michael, when it came time to turn in his screenplay, and and he's the late, great Michael, he's gone now. um, He basically took Danny's lyrics and reconfigured them to look like a script and, Uh. and therefore effectively turned absolutely zero in. Our production executive, David Hoberman at Disney, it was still a Disney film at that time. I had worked with on on my film Homeward Bound, so I, we knew each other quite well. And he suggested that I be brought in to um, to write the screenplay. Interestingly, if you examine Nightmare, uh, Danny really tells pretty much Jack Skellington's entire story in song. Mm. So I, I liken it to having to build a house that everybody was already living in. So <laughs> so. I thought, well, what what is there? What story is there to tell? So there was obviously the Sally story to tell in the screenplay, and Sally was designed as Corpse Bride, you know, existed later as a very sort of Zoftig, uh, kind of va 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 voom looking woman, and I am not that woman, and so I said, well, I you know, I, I kind of need to change Sally so I can figure her out, so I, I, I said, you know, I want her more like the little matchstick girl, and so she got redesigned to look the way she looked in the film, and Danny and I went on a, on a holiday for a week, and in that week, because they were really under the gun, I mean, they had already animated one of the songs, they were well into their design phase oh i they when they first hired me they brought me up to san francisco where the film was being made and they had done a brilliant thing they'd brought animators from all over the world to imagine characters for halloween town and on the wall there was the drawing of um the scientist sitting in his wheelchair with his big lips that look like a duck with his cranium open and he was scratching his brains and i said i i know i can use him uh (laughs) And I also, when they asked me, if I, if someone asked me to, to participate in something, if, if I get a sort of flood of one or two or three images, I know I can contribute. So when they asked me to, to do the project, I pictured Sally jumping out of the tower and breaking apart and sewing herself back together again. I pictured her leaving her leg to seduce Oogie Boogie while she went to rescue Jack. So I knew, I knew I could help. I knew I could, I could do something. So Danny and I went on this holiday and um, literally in five or six days, I wrote, you know, my contribution, I wrote the script. Um, in, in When you think about it, an animated film, especially a musical like that, is about 75, 80 pages long, at least in those days it was. And my script, I don't know, it was probably 50 pages. So it sounds like a, a an incredible accomplishment in such a short time, but it really, it wasn't really a strain. I just had to kind of follow my nose about about Sally. So I turned the script in, and Tim loved it. David Hoberman loved it. Henry Sellers, the director, loved it. So we were off and running. 
But interestingly, in the course of making the film, I was brought up to San Francisco at least once a month to sort of, you know, um, put my head together with the storyboard artists because they would, you know, board, they would intensely board a scene before they, you know, made a crack of film because it's so, it's such a laborious and expensive process making stop motion animation. And they would come up against sort of issues and have me come up and work it out with them. And I was so inspired by the way they were animating Sally to sort of look like a spider that I further developed her into having stratagems like you would think a spider might. Mm. And so the creating of the fog, I don't even know what was there before, but the creating of the fog to to engulf the sleigh before Jack took off was completely inspired by working with the storyboard artist. So that was a really, really fun process. And, And it's so incredible. You go to dailies in the morning and, and that they're like five seconds long because mm. it's such a laborious experience making stop motion and everybody would congratulate you and clap and go out to work. And I just thought it was, just, it, it would, I mean, I would have, can't believe those people aren't in madhouses to be honest. <laughs> so I guess just for me to kind of clarify um, what you were sort of saying about where I guess chronologically the writing stages happened. So was Danny's work on the lyrics essentially the first major contributions to the story? Well, well, it was all supposed to happen as the script was being written, but as I said, Michael didn't write a script. So Danny's songs, they were all complete, except for Sally's song, and I guess except for the last song in the film. You know, all the other, the Lock, Stock, and Barrel songs, Jack's songs, they were they were already written by the time I came on board. And were they written as, as lyrics, or was he already kind of into the orchestration, like the um, putting the musical side of things together? He did them at the same time, as I recall. I'm, ha- I'm having a little brain fart about that, but I believe that uh-huh. they were all born at the same time, because he wrote the lyrics and the music, so I, I think they came at the same time. Hmm. Did Henry Selleck have any specific input into adding ideas, or was he essentially just kind of directing things as they came together? Henry, uh, gosh, that's a, that's a good question. I don't really recall the answer to it. I mean, Henry was definitely the director. Tim was nowhere to be had. I, I know people think of it as his film, but he wasn't. Rick Heinrich did the design work, and Henry directed it, and. I think I think he was happy with the script and just sort of dove into it, is is what I recall. Well, certainly it's it's very interesting, sort of that such a focus, I guess, was on Sally and the professor, like because I guess I hadn't really sort of thought about it, but yeah, they they don't have songs together, like their relationship isn't really kind of carried forward in that way, and when you do take the songs away, that is the bulk of what I guess you're left with is like her evading him yeah. and. And Sally, I guess, like, uh, of the characters, really appears to have become, like, one of the, the main absolute fan favorites above all of the more eccentric monster characters. Oh, that's nice. That's nice to hear. I, I imagine it's probably, like, what you were sort of saying about, like, when originally if she was kind of meant to be more of a, a bombshell, I guess, and taking that and, and yeah. making it more about someone who's a bit more meek, but a more... Uh, thoughtful, I guess, and someone you kind of root for. I don't. I don't really have an. I. I, I, I don't have a notion of how Sally was. T- 
talked about in the story meetings between Tim and Danny and Michael, because um, they had quite a few meetings. And I, I really, I don't, I mean, I know what her design looked like, but I, I actually was never told what her role was. Or, I mean, obviously she would be Jack's girlfriend, but what, what her character was like, nobody ever talked to me about that, which is probably a good idea. I'm glad they didn't. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's sort of, uh, there's an appeal, I suppose, to both of them, the the Jack and Sally, that kind of being a misfit, but in a kind of misfit world already. I remember there was a, a character in Stranger Things a few years ago that a very dedicated subsection of social media went, like, ape for because they all related to her because she was kind of a wallflower. And those characters, are, it's kind of nice that, you know, they can be main characters and they're the... I'm not sure if romantic lead is necessarily the case with a movie like this, but there's certainly a, a strong kind of bond, you know, between the two characters. Well, I don't, I, I don't know how you feel about it, but but I feel that everybody feels like a misfit. Mm. I mean, every human alive pretty much feels like a misfit. So, so these characters, I think, really touch people more closely than most studio people or even filmmakers realize yeah absolutely and i think that, that sort of when the time passes between the film coming out and um it then eventually having something of a legacy then it sort of then you really get a sense of where that is where it actually hits with people yeah i don't know if you realize that neither edward scissorhands nor nightmare before christmas was particularly well it much of a hit when they came out and and disney was so afraid of nightmare that they thought oh little kids are going to are not going to like this movie and so they made it a touchstone film which was their much more adult label because uh, they thought well only teenagers and young adults will be interested in this and it was i knew they were dead wrong because danny's little daughter was four or five years old and she she just sat in the back seat of the car singing those songs so <laughs> we told her to shut up <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Disney has embraced it, certainly. Now that it's, uh... oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess as far as like how it then sort of came together, like how did you feel about the end result, seeing it animated and with all these voices and stuff? Oh, I was very moved by it. I mean, I was very moved by finally, you know, having the film exist. Yeah, I would say it was an overall positive experience. It had its hiccups, but um, you know, most films do when in production. But I, I, you know, I was very pleased with the with the outcome. I, I did I did feel that I would have liked to take another crack at the very ending, but I didn't get that opportunity, unfortunately. Mm. And I don't know what I would have done with it anyway. But I, I just felt like kind of deflated at the at the tail end. And I, 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 I anyway, I asked to take another crack, and everybody yelled at me. So <laughs> <laughs> that was that. <laughs> You know, after so many years in production, people are so exhausted that they just they don't want to hear. So. <laughs> <laughs> Those are very tired animators. <laughs> oh, and a tired director. I mean, everyone was tired. Mm. <laughs> Except for me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess now, like, that, this amount of time has passed. Have you noticed anything as far as, like, the public or the industry's attitude toward the film changing over time? Oh, well, it's, I, so I, I, I was on a junket on another film in Europe like, oh, 10 years ago now. And I was asked by a journalist, like, well, how does it feel to have the most beloved 
have written the most beloved cult film on the planet. And I had absolutely no idea to which film they were referring. <laughs> and it was nightmare. And pretty much any country I visit in whatever is the town square, you'll, you'll see like a Jack Skellington character on stilts amongst the, the other Bucksters there. Um, and that's, that just fascinates me. And I haven't been, but the sort of annual transformation of the haunted mansion out in Disneyland into uh, a nightmare experience is, is pretty amazing. Mm. And they do an annual screening of it, which is all, you know, it, 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 I mean, it's really had a life and my greatest regret though, it's, it's a, it's, it's ultimately a petty regret, but I don't know if you know that writers don't get residuals on animated movies um, because Walt Disney said writers didn't write animated movies, that the animators wrote them, which is patently untrue, at least now. So I have reaped absolutely no financial. And I took a really big salary cut because they were out of money when they hired me to write it because they spent all their money on the other writer. And so I, I've made absolutely no financial reward from Nightmare's huge success, which is, you know, it is what it is, but it sort of makes me a little bit grumpy when I think about it. Mm. We were we were chatting earlier <laughs> in the podcast of, um, I guess, again, because it's an anniversary and they're really, they're not holding back as far as what they can put <laughs> the stamp of the film on, like board games and any kind uh-huh. of apparel and stuff. And yeah, that's, uh, yeah. that's unfortunate. It's amazing. It, no, and it's amazing. I mean, not that a writer would ever get part of of the merchandising. Well, that would be awfully nice. But um, yeah, residuals would have been nice. So yeah, I guess it was over a, a decade later that Corpse Bride happens, and I guess it's sort of generally regarded as a spiritual successor uh, to Nightmare. Some of the points that you brought up just now, I'm kind of interested in, like, for example, having a bit of a rift with Tim Burton. Had that at all repaired by this point, or is that kind of still in the air? Well, it was Danny who encouraged him. They they were flumping around about, about Corpse Bride. I couldn't quite get a story going. And it was Danny who said to Tim, come on, you know, get over it, talk to her. So I met with Tim. There was another director also on the project. And Tim said, just follow your instincts and do what you think is right. And the other director came up to my ranch to talk to me about what he thought the film should be like. And um, I called Tim and I said, well, you know, what do you want me to do? Because I don't really like a lot of these images he's suggesting. And he said, well, just ignore them. So I did. And I was... Um, promptly fired after my first draft because Tim was busy making big fish and the other director, you know, deep sixed me. Um, they actually had hired another writer without telling me Uh, after they fired me without telling me I was fired, um, and hired another writer in the meantime, which, so to be perfectly honest, my name is on it because it was given the green light because I was involved, but I, have never seen it wow it's it's so (laughs) fascinating and bizarre how that industry (laughs) is structured and credits and the hirings and firings and everything isn't it i know i know it's ridiculous but so i can't really answer any questions about corpse bride though i know i loved my script and it actually there's only two movies i've written where i cry at the end 
well, the one is called Homeward Bound, which is an animal story. And I know mm-hmm. full well what happens. And every time I see that film, I end up bawling like a baby, which is ridiculous. And the other was when I was writing The End of Corpse Bride, I just bawled like a baby. And I, I don't know how the movie actually ends, but I loved my ending. but you know it doesn't matter i was blessed to have made at least two films that you know have stood the test of time and that people really loved i mean the experience of the first preview of edward scissorhands i think was probably the peak of my writing life where because you know you write stuff that you think will make people laugh and cry and you have no idea if that's gonna happen so we were sitting in Orange County, California, which at that time was a great Republican stronghold. So all the young people they had brought in to watch the preview all looked like Jim, the the, the bad character, you know, the character who was horrible. Mm. And Tim was in the bathroom vomiting the whole time. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I, I, I was in the audience and I heard laughter at the beginning, which was exactly what I had hoped to hear. And then at a turning point in the film, I started to hear sniffles. And by the end, I heard like outright weeping. And I was just sitting there beaming my ass off. I, I couldn't have been happier. So, so, you know, when something hits the beats that, you, that you're that you hoping to hit, uh, it just is an absolutely, you know, joyous experience. So thank you to Caroline Thompson, writer of The Nightmare Before Christmas, now 25 years old, insanely. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be on this holiday season, wherever you are in the world. It may very well have been on already. There's there's no such thing as a bad excuse to watch that film. No, you not know? at all. I don't really buy stuff on, like, home media anymore, what with all the streaming stuff, but the, like, like five or six films that I do have on Blu-ray, and Nightmare Before Christmas is one of them, because mm. it's just nice to have it kind of <laughs> within reach i suppose yeah the stuff from when you were a kid i think that i tend to have more of a kind of fondness for as far as owning it you know speaking of films have you seen that uh twitter has renamed itself go see spider-verse uh yes people are um spider-man mad they are <laughs> It's an interesting one. We talked about, you know, the Nightmare Before Christmas and the fact that it, you know, serves that place in its heart. And as we grow older, we're not attached to films. But I've never seen so many people aged between 25 and 40 just implore people to go and see a film. Yeah, it's um, it's not my, um, I guess, area of interest, the Spider-Man verse. My sort of whatever interest I have is that I kind of like the Lego movie. Mm. And there's, I guess, a bit of a connection there. And the, But, you know, visually, I, I respect what it's doing. I think that, it, you know, some of the concepts and clips and artwork look fantastic. And I'm glad for Spider-Man fans that uh, it appears to be a satisfying film. Uh, it, certainly, I haven't gotten that vibe from any other Spider-Man movie that was made in the last, you know, 20 years. Mm. Um, I mean, that one with Willem Dafoe as a Power Ranger villain <laughs> was the last one I sat through, and that was pretty uh, arduous. Uh, you've missed some. Uh, you've missed an entire world of film there, Ben. You know, they're trying to get it right, trying to get it right, getting it right with the the new Marvel one, and then apparently, you know, the 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 new Spider Verse film is incredible. And, and in spite of everyone on my Twitter feed, either um, 
you know, been to see it or or telling people to go see it or it's just literally they've stopped talking about Brexit. It's just go see <laughs> Spider Man, go see Spider Man, go see Spider Man. Uh, I've not gone to see it yet, but I'm I'll I'll go see it soon. Be good. Yeah, the only other weird bit of sort of trivia I know about it is like the lead single from the soundtrack was by uh, Troy from Opie and Anthony because <laughs> they've been talking Ooh, okay. about it on the radio. He was like the producer who has become like in recent years a music producer. Right. I found that quite nice because you know he's a you know a man of a certain age who's finally kind of getting success in mm. the music industry. Um, so good for him. I'm sure it's uh, looks and sounds great. Mm. Other news, if we're doing news, Ben, uh, with the, in this topsy turvy upside down podcast, people are expecting us to go away and to plug things and stuff. But let's just crack on with some news, shall we? Sure. Um, <laughs> thanks for that enthusiasm. Uh, <laughs> sure. Oh, that's more like it. So, uh, <laughs> you want news? Here it is, Ben. Um, the Oscars have released the shortlist for animated shorts. Um, ah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So this is the part of the year where the we go on this little roller coaster of um, you know which one we want to win, and then you know the one that we don't want to win uh, wins, and then we sort of come to a conclusion that ah, it's all all doesn't matter, and then it gets to this point in the year when it matters again, Ben. It's starting to matter. It it, it it's it's real. It's here. Get behind it. I love Oscar season. <laughs> It's just nice to see all these films being validated and, you know, good for them. Yeah, absolutely. So, the list, Ben. How many of these have you seen? Uh, Right, well, I've got it in front of me. Uh, It appears that recent Squiggly podcast guest John Cars has made the grade. Mm Mm-hmm. Coincidence? Well, let's just see. Because next up, recent Squiggly podcast guests, Alison Snowden and David Fine are also on the list. With their film Animal Behaviour. Well, that's two out of two. And um, uh, the rest, I'm sure. Oh, the recent Squiggly Podcast guest, Trevor yeah. Jimenez, <laughs> who made Weekends. Good good catch. I think we got away with that one. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven others that we haven't had on the podcast, or indeed the site. Well, uh, I've got an interview with uh, Domi Shi, which is completely unusable because it was from the Annecy press conference that uh, that, that we spoke about uh, back in the summer. So, you know, three and a little bit out of, <laughs> out of ten is not bad going. So we've got Age of Sail uh, by John Cars, uh, Animal Behaviour by Alison Snowden, David Fine, uh, Bow by Domi Shi, Bilby. Uh, and Bird Karma, which are the two DreamWorks features. We've got uh, Grandpa Walrus, or Pepe Le Morse, Late Afternoon, uh, Lost and Found, One Small Step, and as previously mentioned, Trevor Jimenez's Weekends. Uh, and some of these have started finding their way online, actually. So um, I know Age of Sales online, Bao, Bilby, Bird Karma are online. So they're all kind of, uh, I think, One Small Step's online as well. So they're all making their way out here. Have you have you got any particular favourites, Ben? I saw One Small Step and uh, Lost and Found quite recently. I think they actually screened in the same uh, programme as Sunscapades did at Encounters. Hmm. Uh, and it was interesting seeing the audience response to them. People really liked them. Uh, and Lost and Found in particular. And Lost and Found is one of those films where I was like... I, I kind of liked the ending, like... I won't spoil it because it's not really out yet, but like 
the ending could be happier, you know? Mm. Like, the lead up to it, um, you know, it, it was fine. It was very well made. It's a very suspenseful film, I guess, to some, but I kind of didn't feel that so much, I guess. It, it didn't move me, I suppose, in the way that it moved other people. Uh, one small step. I recently saw a TV commercial that, like, ripped this off. Like, it was it was really, really similar. Like, like little girl... What, gro- people in advertising nicking, like, short animations? It's unconscionable, Steve, and it's... it's hopefully, this will be the first and last time it occurs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, late afternoon, uh, I enjoy... My mm. favourite, probably, of all of these is Pepe Lemos. Mm. I forget where we saw it. Maybe Annecy. And it was a while ago. I just really remember liking it a lot. You know, it was that kind of weirdness, I guess, that I enjoy about my short films. Some of them I haven't seen, to be honest. I haven't seen the DreamWorks ones. Um, oh, I saw uh, Bilby. It's it's just been released online uh, just before I started recording this. And obviously I saw... Bird Karma at, um, at Annecy. There's one thing that spoils Bird Karma. Um, in fact, it's a very well-made, wonderful 2D uh, film. It has uh, a lot of absolutely gorgeous um, character animation in it. It's it's a wonderful film. And now I'm going to ruin it for you. Um, there's repeated animation with the splashes. Right. And now I didn't notice that first time round, and then somebody told me it, and I've seen it again, and I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh, there it is, there it is. Ah, oh, you've ruined it for me, Katie Steed. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> and uh, and so I'm I'm passing that on uh, from <laughs> uh, from Katie to the world. <laughs> but it's it's a great film if you can if you can get beyond that, uh, which you should be able to because we're all grown ups. Uh, um, Bilby was quite good a nice action packed uh, film uh, a lot of fun but you know kind of predictable um, but nice to see all these kind of uh, Australian kind of animals and marsupials and just because obviously if you go to Australia Ben everything can kill you oh yeah you know you can't sit on the toilet without you know having a crocodile up your bum or whatever it's you know it's it's uh, it's just the worst. And it's a film about that, really, with a nice, uh, cute little character. A couple of cute little characters, which is uh, lovely. Um, what else have we got on this? Pepe Le Morse, though, that is, that is a cut above. It's a really nice film. But I was speaking with uh, uh, people from France, and it's not quite as favoured in France uh, as, it, as I would imagine it would be, because it's, it's kind of a pitch for a feature. Okay. So it's kind of seen as a little cheap. But uh, as the film itself, that kind of dysfunctional family, uh, which are just you're instantly welcomed by and just you love them. You know, they're, they're just quirky and but in, in a kind of non-conventional quirky. You know, when somebody says quirky, you're like, oh, God, I'm going to hate them. But uh, it's that kind of you recognize a lot of stuff uh, in in your own kind of family. Um and then it just you just hit with weirdness that you rarely see. Mm. It's such a it's such a fantastic film. Late afternoon is is again gorgeous. Um, a really nice way of telling a story like that. Uh, and there's a few lovely surprises in that film. Uh, I don't know if it's a rel- if it's an adventurous list. 
certainly a film like Animal Behaviour, uh, I absolutely adore as well. It's it's clever character comedy animation, but there's not a second wasted in it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do character comedy animation with animals until you're blue in the face, but this film is, I, I think there's something special about it. I do love it. But yeah, it's quite a commercial list, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's I guess, safe. So going forward, five of these are going to make the way through and five aren't. Uh, <laughs> this is where I always fall down. Every year I ask you which five you want to go through, Ben, and you don't care. So I'm going to ask you once more, which five do you want to see go through? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the five that I like, uh, Weekends, Late Afternoon, Grandpa Walrus, uh, Animal Behaviour, and... Yeah, I guess Age of Sail. Yeah. Because it's got uh, Al Swearingen in it. (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely go with Animal Behaviour. I'll have a bit of Grandpa Walrus in there as well. Uh, Weekends, definitely. Um, It would be nice to see Late Afternoon in there and Age of Sail. What I think I'll probably go through is... Age of Sail will go through. Bow will go through. Lost and Found. Uh, one Small Step. And Bilby or something like that. You know, it, it's it's not going to be a list that I'm going to be comfortable with. <laughs> um, not that there's anything wrong with those. It's just that the ones that uh, I'm, I have a particular affection for uh, I generally don't end up on, on the um, nomination list. Uh, when it comes to the the academy, but you know the academy is just one one body that are picking uh, animated short films. You know, if you if, like like you said, Ben, you know if you if you want to see uh, the kind of stuff that we're into, you know, you interview them all over Squiggly, and we see them in film festivals, we see them online and and, and shared among us. Uh, this is just one uh, one opinion. Yeah, and there are so many um, uh, avenues through which films can get prizes and get visibility that you know are considered to be if not on paper as valid by industry peers and the like pretty respectable yeah so you know i i mean i just i'm i could never understand the idea of because i know people who are like on my level kind of thing who are like they're they're just doing this because they want to win an oscar one day and i can't begin to imagine like living your life like that no no, no, no. Because it's so circumstantial and everything. But uh, well, that's 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 surely that's first year university stuff. You get that out of your system. I think I may have entertained some sort of masturbatory ideas of like, oh, maybe my student film would do really well. Maybe it would get nominated for a BAFTA kind of thing. And that I think by the time I was like halfway through the film, I was like, oh, this isn't getting nominated for a BAFTA. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll finish it. That'll be a miracle, you know. <laughs> I did. I think I mentioned I did submit Sunscapades for a BAFTA just because it was eligible. Because mm. in a way, it would be like funny, like more than anything, yeah. you know. But of course, it's not going to go through to win a BAFTA. But it is a strange old, old world when it comes to like there will be people who like they will just strategically only submit to BAFTA or Academy Award qualifying festivals mm. and they will not only do that but they will throw like huge sums of money at them because they uh, they charge you know extortionate entry fees 
because they have that mark, I guess. And then some of them are Academy Award qualifiers and they don't charge anything, so there's no kind of hard and fast rule about that. Yeah. I mean, some of the... Um, uh, well, I know BAFTA doesn't doesn't actually. I'm not bitter or anything, Ben, but I know BAFTA doesn't uh, allow animation only festivals to be a part of its uh, uh, selection process. And if you know animation and film festivals, most of the time they will only take the winners of like Grand Prix or something if it is animated. Uh, yeah, so that's what's happening on the Oscar front. I guess we'll uh, keep you up to speed in the new year. <laughs> Strap in for the squiggly Oscar roller coaster. Far too much detail and introspection on something that doesn't really matter. So yeah, um, anything else to report? There's, there's some new stuff on the site if you guys want something to read. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good site. I enjoy reading it. Why should we do all the bloody work? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Plugs-wise, if you didn't yet catch the BBC4 documentary Secrets of British Animation that fleetingly features Steve and myself, you can still check it out on the BBC iPlayer for the next week or so. My film Sunscapades has a few screenings lined up for the new year, I'm happy to report. Here in the UK, it'll be screening at the London Short Film Festival in their new shorts Animation Variety Showcase. It's in some quite inspiring company, alongside the likes of Ruth Linkford, Lizzie Hobbs, and the Brothers McLeod, so I'm quite chuffed about that. It's going to be on Sunday, January 13th, 4pm, at the Regent Street Cinema. I will try my darndest to be there myself. Please do come along. To find out more about the festival, visit shortfilms.org.uk. The following Saturday, January 19th, some good news for you Belgians that may be listening. The film will be part of the Brussels Independent Short Film Festival, Core May Trash, in International Competition 2. That will be at 7.30pm at Le Riche Claire. The website for that one is cormaytrash.net. And finally, my book, Independent Animation, Directing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films, is currently on sale at crcpress.com. The publisher has marked down all their titles by 20% through to the end of the year. 25% if you buy more than one book. So if you're on the fence about buying a copy, well, now would be a good time to snap one up. Just putting that out there. Oh, and shipping is free. I've got something to plug, Ben. I want everybody to have a Merry Christmas. That's my plug. Aww! <laughs> you know where to find us on Twitter at Ben O. Mitchell and Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson at Squiggly for Squiggly and uh, Squiggly.co.uk for the website. Squiggly Animation is Instagram and Squiggly Magazine is Facebook. I'm pretty sure that's all of it. That's the lot. Until next year, to all a good night. <laughs>